This podcast is an examination of the historical research of William Branham and his message cult following. William Branham was a minister in the gambling town of Jeffersonville, Indiana, just across the river from Louisville, Kentucky, as early as 1933. He came in contact with the Reverend Roy E. Davis, an official spokesperson for the 1915 Ku Klux Klan, and later Imperial Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan. Davis introduced Branham to the Pentecostal faith and the art of faith healing, which would later be introduced into Branham's stage persona as he took his place among the evangelists in the post-World War II healing revival. Branham is credited by some as being a catalyst for the Latter Rain Movement and Jim Jones of People's Temple. This podcast is not sympathetic to the views of the Ku Klux Klan that William Branham held, but it is disturbing and warrants research. This podcast is an examination of that research. You can find more about this research and other topics on the website william-branham.org. Join us as we turn back the pages of time and examine the controversial issues of William Branham and his message. In the second book of Irenaeus' Against Heresies, Irenaeus dives deeper into the roots of the serpent seed doctrine, as well as the entire system that produced the extra-biblical teaching. In the preface, he describes the second book as an exposure to the connections between the doctrine and the pagan worship that formed the basis for this doctrine. <clears throat> After exposing, exposing the heresy, Irenaeus writes that there will be no more hidden alliances all things hidden will be exposed. He writes, In the present book I shall establish these points which fit into my design, so that, as far as time permits, an overthrow, by means of lengthened treatment under distinct heads, their whole system. For which reason, since it is an exposure and a subversion to their opinions, I have so entitled the composition of this work. For it is fitting by a plain revelation and overthrow of their conjunctions to put an end to these alliances and to Bythus himself, and thus obtain a demonstration that he never existed at any previous time, nor has any existence. <clears throat> at the core of the doctrine, created beings were being <clears throat> elevated in status from the lowly creatures in God's creation to far more powerful beings that represented the pagan gods in each of their respective forms of worship. To add words to the scriptures, describing a physical act of sex, one must alter and increase the power of both the angels, the angels that are fallen and the angels that are good. <clears throat> but Irenaeus reminds us that there is only one God. He is the creator of the heavens and the earth, along with everything that dwells within. He is the perfect architect of his perfect will, and God's design does not lend itself to error. <clears throat> Even the hairs on our head are numbered, according to God's perfect plan. The fruit from the Garden of Eden was not a defect, and it was placed there by God from the beginning. He writes, it is proper, then, that I should begin with the first and most important head, that is, God the Creator, 
who made the heavens and earth and all things that are, are therein, whom these men blasphemously style the fruit of a defect, and to demonstrate that there is nothing either above him or after him, <clears throat> nor that influenced by anyone but of his own free will. He created all things since he is the only God, the only Lord, the only Creator, the only Father, alone containing all things, and himself commanding all things into existence. But just like William Branham, teaching that the Logos went out of God to form Christ, Jesus <clears throat> was a different Jesus to the Gnostics. A man by the name of Marcion and his followers believed the same thing. Sophia poured herself into Christ, the willing vessel, and under their teaching became a god as John baptized him and the Spirit descended like a dove. As scriptures describe Christ starting his ministry at age 30, the followers of Marcion placed a great emphasis on the number 30, which incorporated other aspects of pagan religion into their doctrine. Serpent seed gave power to the angels, and the Gnostics were spreading false teaching, describing Satan as being the creator of this evil world. This world, according to the Gnostics, was Satan's Eden, that had replaced God's Eden, the Garden of Eden, because Satan had the power to pervert. Full control of this world was taken away from God and placed into the hands of an a lowly angel, one that had fallen. <clears throat> Irenaeus writes, Those more, moreover <clears throat> who say that the world was formed by angels or by any other maker of it, contrary to the will of him who is the supreme father, err first of all on this very point. They maintain that angels form such and so mighty a creation contrary to the will of Most High God. This would imply that angels were more powerful than God. If it were not so, then he was either careless or inferior, or paid no regard to the things which took place among his own possessions, whether they turned out ill or well, so that he may drive away and prevent the one when he raised and rejoiced over the other. But if one would not ascribe to such conduct, even to a man of any ability, how much less to God? That's Irenaeus against heresies. <clears throat> Under this teaching, Marcion describes a system of two gods, the Eternal Father, the God of all gods, and His creation, the Son. Because the Father and the Son were not one and the same in their belief system, Irenaeus tells us that Marcion was serving a different god, one that was dual in nature. But because of this separation, it is necessary to elevate many other beings in God's creation into gods. Irenaeus writes, These remarks are in like manner applicable against the followers of Marcion, for his two gods would also be con contained and circumcised by an immense interval which separates them one from another. But then there is a, ne a necessity to suppose a multitude of gods surrounded by an immense distance from each other on every side, beginning one with another and ending in one another. <clears throat> it's Irenaeus against heresies. When you take a step back 
and you consider the emphasis that William Branham places on numbers tied to spiritual events, it becomes quite shocking. Most followers are familiar with the emphasis on basic elementary numbers such as threes, fives, and sevens, such as this example. In 1963, a sermon entitled The Evening Messenger, Branham says, Now I'm typing something. Notice God, how he's done this three times. And three is the perfect number of God. God is perfected in three, like Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And justification, sanctification, baptism of the Holy Ghost. He's perfected because three is his perfection. Five is the number of grace. Seven, the number of worship. Twelve. Forty is the number of persecution. Fifty, jubilee, worship. Pentecost means fifty. In forty days, Moses was tempted. Forty days, Christ was tempted, you see. And all these a type. God is perfect in three. That's William Branham, the evening messenger. Some of the numbers, however, in Branham's teachings go unnoticed. Similar to the followers of Marcion who gave spiritual meaning to the number 30, William Branham tried to twist scripture to squeeze examples of 30 that were not written. Joseph, for instance, was allegedly sold for 30 pieces of silver under Branham's doctrine, creating a new type simply based on numbers. In the sermon Israel in the Church, 1953, Branham says, they sold Joseph 30 pieces of silver, throwed him into a ditch to be dead. He was taken up, sent in then. And while he was in imprisonment in there, he, there's two men, a butler and a baker, and one of them was lost and the other one was saved by Joseph, who gave the dream and interpreted it. And the same thing when Jesus was hanging on a cross. There was a thief on one side and a thief on the other. One was lost, one was saved. Just exactly. Then he was taken in before Pharaoh to interpret the dream and was made the right hand of Pharaoh. No one could see Pharaoh without coming to Joseph. And a perfect type of Christ sitting on the right hand of God. And no man comes to God except Christ. Just exactly the perfect type there. In another sermon, <clears throat> uh, 1951, the angel of the Lord, he says, All right, this is William Branham, All right, Joseph, one of the patriarchs, sold down in Egypt, the perfect type of Christ, betrayed by his brethren, sold for a few pieces of silver, about 30 pieces like Christ was. He wore a coat of many colors, as Christ was seen in Revelations 1, setting on a throne and a rainbow over him. There's seven perfect colors, representing the seven church ages. Rainbow representing a covenant. He was to look as Jasper and Sardiston, which was Reuben and Benjamin, the first and the last, that which was and is and shall come, the root and offspring of David, the morning star. How marvelous! And with the covenant of the churches, seven golden candlesticks behind them, each candlestick representing a church age. This connection, however, is not only extra-biblical, but entirely false. Christ was not the re Christ was the result of <clears throat> Christ was the sacrifice. He was not the result of a type of a slave. Christ was the sacrifice and not a slave. It was his will that all be saved and he died on the cross for us like a lamb led to the slaughter, not like a slave to his hanging. And under the law of Moses, slaves were sold for a price of 20 pieces of silver, not 30. Leviticus 27.5 says, 
If it is a person between the ages of 5 and 20, the value of the male at 20 shekels and of a female at 10 shekels. <clears throat> but Irenaeus exposes the hidden meaning behind the Gnostic spiritualization of the number 30. The number 30 represented the triconodad. Against heresies, he says, we may remark in the first place regarding their triacontad, the whole of, the of it marvelously falls to ruin on both sides, that is, as respects defect and excess. They say that to indicate it, the Lord came to be baptized at the age of 30 years. But this assertion really amounts to a manifest subversion of their entire argument. You see, under the pagan worship, the gods of worship were grouped into the Triconodad, which was 30 gods, the Decad, which was 10 gods, the Ogdode, which was 8 gods, one fallen to make 7, and the Triad, which was 3 gods. And Irenaeus exposes it. He says, also in Against Heresies, I have shown that the number 30 fails them in every respect, too few aeons as they represent them, being at one time found in the Plumora, and then again too many to correspond with that number. There are not therefore thirty aeons, nor did the Savior come to be baptized when he was thirty years old for this reason, that he might show forth the thirty silent aeons of their system. Otherwise they must first separate and eject the Savior himself from the Plumora of all. Moreover, they affirm that he suffered on the twelfth month, so that he continued to preach one year after his baptism. And they endeavor to establish this point, for out of the prophet is written to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of retribution. Being truly blind, insomuch they affirm that they have found the mysteries of Bythus, yet not understanding that each which called by Isaiah the acceptable year of the Lord, nor the day of retribution. For the prophet neither speaks concerning a day which includes the space of 12 hours, nor of a year, which is the length of 12 months. <clears throat> For they themselves acknowledge that the prophets have very often expressed themselves in parables and allegories, and are not to be understood according to the mere sound of the words. But after going into great detail of the formation of the serpent seed doctrine through systems of pagan gods, Irenaeus attacks the doctrine itself. He describes the doctrine as one that's crumbling from the core because the internal structure of the teaching is conflicting. Under Gnostic teaching, Adam and Eve were formed as spirit people before given flesh and blood. To describe a bad seed line in the human race must mean that you must also define a good seed line, which would describe God as implanting his seed into a human. And if God's bloodline were in mortals, then the mortal would be perfect, not subject to fail. Irenaeus writes, But what sort of talk also is this concerning their seed, that which was conceived by the mother according to the configuration of those angels who wait upon the Savior, shapeless and without form and imperfect, it was that deposit in the demurge without his knowledge in order that through his instrumentality it might attain perfection and form in that soul which he had, so to speak, filled with seed. 
This is to affirm in the first place that those angels who wait upon their Savior are imperfect and without figure or form. If indeed which was conceived according to their appearance was generated, any such being as has been described. Even worse, according to Irenaeus, God must be limited under this teaching. The one true God, which has the knowledge of even the breath that we breathe, must be changed in nature. He must become a God who had no knowledge that the seed was implanted. Irenaeus writes, Then in the next place, as, as to their saying that the Creator was ignorant of that deposit of seed which took place in him, and again of that impartation of the seed which was made by him to man, their words are futile and vain and are in no way susceptible to, by proof. For how, can they have been, how could he have been ignorant of it if that seed had possessed any substance and pe peculiar properties? If so, on the other hand, it was without substance and without quality, and so was really nothing. Then, as a, a matter of course, he was ignorant of it. That's against heresies. But Irenaeus makes a third point regarding the good seed that the Gnostics believed to be implanted by God. A spirit cannot mate with a physical being. The animal nature of mankind cannot form a bond with a being that does not exist in physical form. When the serpent mated with Eve under this teaching, his seed was implanted with her and contained knowledge. And after reading Irenaeus describing this heresy, one might ask, how then did this seed transfer into Adam if Eve was the receptacle? Irenaeus writes, <clears throat> And that they are truly spiritual in so much as pertain a particle of the Father of the universe has been deposited into their souls, since according to their assertions, assertions they have souls formed of the same su substance as the demurge, himself, yet that he, although he received from the mother once for all of the divine seed and possessed it in himself, still remained of an animal nature, and had not the slightest understanding of those things which are above, which things they boast and say that they themselves understand, while they are still on earth. Does not all this crown all possible absurdity? For so to imagine that the very seed conveyed knowledge and perfection to the souls of these men, while it only gave rise to ignorance in the God who made them, is an opinion that can be held only by those utterly frantic and totally destitute of common sense. That's Irenaeus against heresies. His four, fourth point deals with Gnostic teaching of Satan's Eden. If this seed were truly impregnating knowledge with God's seed of ignorance, as they describe, then the blended combination of the two would produce a defective seed that could not increase. Not only is this doctrine describing God's seed of ignorance and Satan's seed of knowledge insulting to God, it's not plausible. Irenaeus writes further, it is a most absurd and groundless thing for them to say that the seed was, by being thus deposited, reduced to form and then increased, so as prepared for all the reception of perfect rationality. 
For there will be in it an admixture of matter, that substance which they hold to have been derived from the ignorant and defect, and this will prove itself more apt and useful than was the light of the Father. If indeed, when born, according to this contemplation, that the light was without form or figure, but derived from this matter, form and appearance, and increase, and perfection. That's Irenaeus against heresies. While the first few points describe how insulting that this teaching is to Father God, Irenaeus points how, out the fifth and sixth points in this book are insulting to Christ, the Son of the living God. In the fifth point, Irenaeus reminds us that it is absurd to think that an angel produced itself as an infant instead of their own angelic forms. But further, and in addition to what has been said, the question occurs, did their mother, when she beheld the angels, bring forth the seed all at once or only one by one in succession? If she brought forth the whole simultaneously and at once, that which was thus produced can, cannot now be of infantile character. Its descent, therefore, into these men who now exist must be superfluous. But if one by one she did not her form conception according to the figure of these angels whom she beheld, for comp contemplating them all together and once for all, so as to conceive by them, she ought to have brought forth once for all the offspring of those from whose forms she had once for all conceived. But expand on that thought for a bit, considering the Christ child. In Irenaeus' sixth point, he asks a very valid question. What about the Savior? Their teaching of Lucifer being the most beautiful of angelic beings also included a different form of, Jesus, of Christ, which was nothing more than an angel. Was the Son of God less beautiful than Lucifer. He writes, Irenaeus, Why was it, too, that beholding the angels along with the Savior, she did conceive their images, but not that of the Savior, who is far more beautiful than they? Did he not please her? And did she not on that account conceive after his likeness? How was it, too, that the demurge, who they now call an animal being, having as they maintain a special mag his own special magnitude and figure, was produced perfect as respects to his substance, while that which is spiritual, which also ought to be more effective to that which is animal, was sent forth imperfect and required to descend into a soul that in it he may obtain form and thus becoming perfect might be rendered fit for the reception of perfect reason. It's Irenaeus against heresies. Interestingly, Christ was lessened under Branham's theology. Branham lessened Christ from the Son of God to a lowly angelic being and then called him ugly. Under Branham's different version of Jesus, he was less beautiful than Lucifer. 1955, beginning and ending of the Gentile dispensation, Branham says, And at that time Michael shall stand forth, the great prince. Michael was Christ, of course, who fought the angelic wars in heaven with the, dev the devil. Satan and Michael fought together, or fought against each other, rather. 
1963, Three Kinds of Believers, he says, Notice, Satan dwells in beauty. What did he try to do in the beginning? Make a more beautiful kingdom than Michael's was. Moved over in the north and took two-thirds of the angels with him. 1965, Marriage and Divorce. He says, Satan was the one who features that kind of beauty. If we notice, he was the most beautiful of all the angels in heaven. Is that right? And he desired to make heaven a more beautiful place than the kingdom of Michael. Is that right? Also, to show that Cain was his son, he offered a more beautiful sacrifice. Decorated his altars with fruits and flowers and so forth. Is that right? Beautiful. Sin is beautiful, what we call beauty today. And sin is deceiving by beauty. You'd never look at a woman going down the street and tell her what's in her heart, see? But I wanted to say these things so that you could see why that Satan is her designer. That's exactly right. His own son proved it, Cain. Now she is beautiful so that she can deceive. It's William Branham, Marriage and Divorce, 1965. But that's talking about the beauty of Satan. Now listen to how he describes Christ. 1952, I am the resurrection and life. Branham says, he was a man, not no beauty we should desire him. He, was, he wasn't much to look upon, probably a frail-looking little fellow. And the Bible said that he was not beautiful in the way, a big six-footer like or a seven-footer like Saul. <clears throat> As Irenaeus continues, his arguments against the serpent seed doctrine become stronger. The Gnostic belief system that was a system of separation and seclusion they believed that they held the secret mystery knowledge, and that made them the little bride for their day. They believed that their seed was better than the serpent's seed of all who did not ascribe to their teaching. Irenaeus points out that under this philosophy, the scribes and the Pharisees would have also been the elect seed. He writes this, Irenaeus against heresies, still more manifestly is the talk of theirs concerning their seed that proved to be false. And that in a way that's evident to everyone by the fact that they declare those souls which have received the seed from the mother to be superior to all others. Wherefore, they have been honored by the demurge, constituted princes and kings and priests. If this were true, the high priest, Caiaphasus, and Annas, and the rest of the chief priests, arid the doctors of the law, the rulers of the people, would have been first to believe in the Lord, agreeing as they did with respect to that relationship, and even before them should have been Herod the king. That's against heresies. In 1 Timothy 1, Paul references this false doctrine that was being established from Jewish mysticism and Paul tells us that it has no value in furthering our salvation. Hidden mysteries and their associated teaching can never replace the one thing that should be taught in the church of the living God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul writes Timothy, As I urge you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations, 
rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is a love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things which they make confident assertions. It's 1 Timothy 1, verses 3 through 7. Christ did not come to, to the earth to save the elect seed and to condemn the serpent seed. Christ came to save the sinners. Christ offered salvation to all who would believe in his name, offering salvation by grace through faith. Paul writes later in the chapter, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me to be faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and a deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of all the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen.